Sing, she said. Sing a little something for me. Milkman knew no song and had no singing voice that anybody would want to hear. But he couldn't ignore the urgency in her voice. Speaking the words without the least bit of a tune, he sang for the lady. Sugar girl, don't leave me here. Cotton balls to choke me. Sugar girl, don't leave me here. Buckra's arms to yoke me. The blood was not pulsing any longer and there was something black and bubbly in her mouth. Yet when she moved her head a little to gaze at something behind his shoulder, it took a while for him to realize that she was dead. And when he did, he could not stop the worn old words from coming louder and louder as though sheer volume would wake her. He woke only the birds who shuddered off into the air. Milkman laid her head down on the rock. Two of the birds circled around them. One dived into the new grave, scooped something shiny in its beak before it flew away. Now he knew why he loved her so. Without ever leaving the ground, she could fly. There must be another one like you, he whispered to her. There's got to be at least one more woman like you. Beautiful extract from Song of Solomon. Had I such language, I would have said those very words about Toni Morrison when she passed away three years ago. This is Poet on Song, the podcast that proposes to love a poet with you and to accompany them with great music. My name is Mariama Antoine, and today, out of the gospel of the Middle Passage, the blues of slavery, the jazz of big city ghetto nights, that's John Leonard's. I give you the Nobel Prize winning Toni Morrison, whose generative depth and sounding of interiority produces a lyricism that is radiant in his generosity and in my mind can only be described as song. I say that Morrison rivets because she has an ear tuned to the complexities of the American saga and all of its beauty and travesties. Her dives into characters' inner lives read like ballads, like rhapsodies, like adagios. It's all music. Given the tenuous grasp that egoic practices still hold on our world, compassion seems to me the only dignity that is left to those of us who implode, whether it be with rage, despair, or a genuine longing for goodness. When I see the floodgates of suffering opening on the Afghan borders, the drowning migrants displaced by climate, war, or both, our own economic and political divisions, I often feel like Nick Carraway in The Great Gatsby and his want of the world at a moral attention forever. I don't need to be told that everything is okay, or worse, that it will be okay as soon as we get rid of them. But I do need to hear, to know, that we can get there. And the there 
some understanding of our inner connectivity, a sense that life at its core is relational. And perhaps that's why I turned to Toni Morrison these last few months and reread so much of her work. The Bluest Eye, Sula, Jazz, Song of Solomon, Tar Baby, etc., etc. And as I read, I remembered what it was about that savvy book editor turned writer whose elegance caught my attention when I was young and whose intellect retained it throughout my life that I had found so mesmerizing. I want to take you across the landscape of a literary master whose characters almost always seem to usher in some form of redemption. Sometimes it's theirs, like in jazz, and other times it's ours, like in the bluest eye. They draw us into the intricacies of the lives they mold, shape, resent, outgrow with love as available as breath. And it's Morrison's pursuit of goodness that leaves me in awe, that taught me of personal power and the far reach of fortitude. Morrison's stories that showed me that people can love their way back to themselves, to one another, even after harm, that some go to hell and back and are not broken. Mostly, though, it's the symmetry, the sheer beauty of the language which accompanies and delivers these ideas that takes my breath away. Jazz Morrison's sixth novel is this incredible story of a country hunter turned New York City salesman who kills his teenage mistress, the community that does not denounce him, and the wife who shows up at the funeral and tries to cut the dead girl's face. The disgrace which ensues leaves them staring at a portrait of this girl which they leave on their fireplace's mantle, by the way. And across this web of passion and obsession, Morrison anchors the aspirations, the emotions, the interiority of those who move through history without ever being conscious that they were remaking culture. And though we're steeped in the Harlem Renaissance, the story's focus is not its shining stars, but the little people whose strivings are honorable because they're exposed to us in the light of Morrison's compassionate understanding of what is both sacred and profane in the way we work at living. Joe cheats on his wife, yes. Takes to sleeping with a teenage girl, yes. But deeper than his lust are the things he needs. His mother's touch, choice, possibility. Someone to hear and acknowledge his emptiness. Somebody like a teenage orphan named Dorcas with hoof tracing her cheekbones and who knows better than anyone his own age what that inside nothing is like. So Morrison tells us.
When I was a teenager, maybe younger, much younger, I remember that our local evening news seemed to always end with some incident in which a black man had perpetrated some crime and had been brought to justice in one way or another. This was habitual, and so much so that my brother and I invented this little dance to which we would sing, Another black man bites the dust, bites the dust, woo! It was only as I became a woman that I realized how deeply cynical that dance was, how horrid the little song. Obviously, it was a paltry attempt to process a gloom which seemed overwhelming or worse, threatening. Do I understood why we did it? I never really grasped what it was that made us so insensitive to the faces paraded on our screen every night. What had made us, black children that we were, susceptible to accepting the pervading negativity associated to black men. Our own father had died without our knowing him, so we had not grown up with a male figure. But who's to know? But when I read Joe Trace's monologue in jazz, what he explained to me about being able to choose and love a woman forever changed me. I remember lifting my head from the book in search of someone to tell it. And if I had found that someone... I would have said that his love of Dorcas, as prosaic as it was, made me see him as a person. And because I had recognized his humanity, I felt my own. I call this Joe Trace's Rhapsody. While you flicked your foot, turn your ankle for the admiration of the heel. I looked at your knees, but I didn't touch. I told you again that you were the reason why Adam ate the apple and its core. That when he left Eden, he left a rich man. Not only did he have Eve, but he had the taste of the very first apple in the world in his mouth. For the rest of his life, the first to know what it was like to bite it. Bite it down, hear the crunch, and let the red peeling break his heart. You looked at me like you knew me. And I thought it really was Eden, and I couldn't take your eyes in. Because I was loving the hoof marks on your cheeks. I brought you treats, worrying each time what to bring that would make you smile and come again the next time. How many phonograph records, how many silk stockings, the little kit to mend the runs, remember? The purple metal box with flowers on top, full of Shuford's chocolate, cologne in a blue bottle that smelt like a whore. Flowers once, but you were disappointed with that treat, so I gave you a dollar to buy whatever you wanted with. A whole day's pay back home when I was young, just for you, anything just for you. To bite down hard, chew up the core, and have the taste of that red apple skin to carry around with me for the rest of my life. In Mel Vaughn's nephew's room, with the Iceman sign in the window, your first time, and mine, and a matter of speaking, for which, and I will say it again, girl, I would strut out the garden, strut, as long as you held on to my hand. Dorcas, girl. 
I chose you. Nobody gave you to me. Nobody said, that's the one for you. I picked you out. Wrong timing, yep. And doing wrong by my wife. But the picking out, the choosing. Don't ever think I fell for you or fell over you. I didn't fall in love. I rose in it. I saw you and I made up my mind, my mind. And I made up my mind to follow you too. That's something I know how to do from way back. Morrison's genius is her ability to hear the internal song of the human heart beating in and out of love, pushing us to entrain with something that is small and immense all at once. It's Joe Trace, the African-American experience, American history, human striving. One gets the feeling that she's heard this song she sings across generations and is but a transcriber. But that's not entirely true either, for there is the brilliance of her craft, the exacting standard of the professor of English, which she was for numerous years at Howard and then Princeton for the later part of her life. I just love how Joe and Violet fall back in love with each other. And to do that, they will have to accept the wicked trappings of their times, the trauma of shattered families, the neglect of government, the disgrace which follows his affair. And for the first time, piece together selves that are capable of union. And it's beautiful to watch because they do it in steady measure. Even when all seemed lost, Joe cries all day, Violet pounds the pavement looking for answers in despair. By and by, healing happens, forgiveness comes, and with it, a new spring in their affection. And when the narrator realizes that they will escape the dungeon of misery predicted for them, we are as amazed as she is, and this is what she says. I was so sure one would kill the other. I waited for it so I could describe it. I was so sure it would happen, that the past was an absurd record with no choice but to repeat itself at the crack, and no power on earth could lift the arm that held the needle. I was so sure, and they danced and walked all over me. Busy they were being original, complicated, changeable, human, and then... I overreached and missed the obvious. I was watching the streets thrilled by the buildings pressing and pressed by stone, so glad to be looking out and in on things that I dismissed what went on in heart pockets close to mine. I started out believing that life was just made so that the world would have some way to think about itself, but that it had gone awry with humans because flesh 
pinioned by misery, hangs on to it with pleasure. But I don't believe that anymore. Something is missing there. Something rogue. Something else that you have to figure in before you can figure it out. And what is it that has to be figured in? I think it's love. This altruism, which itself is motivated by a kind of recognition of ourselves and the other, seems really important in our pursuit of happiness, I think. Perhaps more so now than ever, because the age demands it. I lost myself on a cool, damp night gave myself in that misty light was hypnotized by strange delight under a lilac tree I made wine from the lilac tree put my heart in its recipe it makes me see what I want to see be to be When I think more than I want to think Do things I never should do I drink much more than I ought to drink Because it brings me back you But goodness is not so simple it would seem. It doesn't always entail kindness, for example. Often, it extends beyond the flaws of those who bring it about. I was thinking about that as I reread Sula, Morrison's second novel, and it's the story of a woman who does whatever she wants, no matter the consequences, and unleashes havoc on a small town called Medallion by assuming liberties, a sense of self, that neither her sex, her class, nor her color allow for. Sula selfishly runs roughshod over people, sleeps and discards husbands that are not hers, dismisses all the codes of communal help which have allowed blacks to survive under Jim Crow. Her will to live is engulfing and explosive and will take anything down. I'll read you a bit from Sula in a moment. Cannot see clearly, isn't that he coming to me? Nearly here. Lilac wine is sweet and heady. Where's my love? 
listen to me Why is everything so hazy Isn't that he Or am I going crazy, dear? I like wine I feel I'm ready I call this Ode to Myself. It's all dialogue and it's brilliant. It's a conversation between Sula and her grandmother, Eva. I might have known them birds met something. Where's your coat? Says Eva. Sula threw herself on the bed. The rest of my stuff will be on later. I should hope so. Them little old furry tails ain't gonna do you any more good than it did the fox that was wearing them. Don't you say hello to nobody when you ain't seen them in 10 years? If folks let somebody know where they is and when they's coming, then other folks can get ready for them. If they don't, if they just pop in all sudden-like, then they've got to take whatever mood they find. How you doing, big mama? Getting by. Sweet of you to ask. You was quick enough when you wanted something, when you needed a little change. Don't talk to me about what you gave me, big mama, or how much I owe you, or none of that. Oh, I ain't supposed to mention it? Okay, mention it. Sula shrugged and turned over on her stomach, her buttocks towards Eva. You ain't been in this house but ten seconds and you're already starting something. Takes two, big mama. Well... Don't let your mouth start knocking your ass can't stand. When are you going to get married? You need to have some babies. It'll settle you. I don't want to make somebody else. I want to make myself selfish. Ain't no woman got no business floating around without no man. You did. Not by choice. Mama did. Not by choice, I said. It ain't right for you to want to stay off by yourself. You need, I'll tell you what you need. Sula set up. I need you to shut your mouth. Don't nobody talk to me like that. Don't nobody. This body does. Just because you was bad enough to cut off your leg, you think you've got the right to kick everybody else with the stump. Who said I cut off my leg? Well, you stuck it under a train to collect insurance. Hold on, you lying heifer. I'm aimed to. Bible says, honor thy father and thy mother so thy days upon the earth may be long that God giveth thee. Mama must have skipped that part. Her days weren't too long. Puss mouth. God's going to strike you. Which God? The one who watch you burn plum. Don't talk to me about no burning. You watch your own mama, you crazy roach. You the one who should have been burnt. But I ain't, got it? I ain't. Any more fires in this house and I'm lighting them. Hellfire don't need no lightning. It's already burning in you. Whatever's burning in me is mine, amen. And I will split this town and everything in it before I let you put it out. 
Even this no, this hell no, that Sula selfishly thunders with all of her small Midwestern black woman's might is good. Because it is a resounding yes to the possibility of choice, of a self that's iterated as it is known in its interiority. I remember how thrilling it was for me to hear her say no to such low standards of being, of living. Before her, I didn't even know you could say no. And what I find particularly striking is how Morrison uses Sula's bad deeds to serve his goodness. She infuses the moral question with an existential one and leaves you wondering, at least me, if our thrivings must always be at the expense of another, of other people, animals, the planet. how well Morrison understood those lessons of alterity, altruism, and connectivity, and how readily she taught them. I felt it in the bluest eye, when the judgment is upon us, when a little black girl subjected to the most abject monstrosity yearns for blue eyes because she believes that if she had them, all of the ugliness that is cast upon her small frame will vanish. The whole novel reads like a ballad, and it's Piccola breeds love pain that is on display, but our views the strappado. The story is sad, but the writing lifts you all the way to the ceiling. In fact, I'll leave you with it. I'm going there to see my mother. She said she'd meet me when I come. I'm only going over Jordan. I'm only going over home. This is when Piccola's parents, Pauline and Charlie, first meet. And it's quite surprising who the Lord ends up being. Here it is. There was a woman named Ivy who seemed to hold in her mouth 
all the sounds of Pauline's soul. Standing a little apart from the choir, Ivy sang the dark sweetness that Pauline could not name. She sang the death-defying death that Pauline yearned for. She sang of the stranger who knew. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on. Let me stand, I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storms, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me on. When my way grows dear, precious Lord, linger near. When my life is almost gone, hear my cry, hear my call. Hold my hands lest I fall. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me on. Thus it was when the stranger, the someone, did appear out of nowhere. Pauline was grateful, but not surprised. He came strutting out of the Kentucky sun on the hottest day of the year. He came big, he came strong, he came with yellow eyes, flaring nostrils, and he came with his own music. When I first see Charlie, I want you to know that it was like all them bits of colors from that time down home, when all of us children went berry picking after a funeral, and I put some in the pocket of my Sunday dress, and they mashed up and stained my hips. My whole dress was messed up with purple, and it never did wash out, not the dress nor me. I could feel that purple inside me, and that lemonade mama used to make when pop came out of the field. It'd be cool and yellowish with seeds floating near the bottom and them streaks of green June bugs made on the trees that night we left from down home. All them colors was in me, just sitting there. So when Charlie come and tickle my foot, it was like them berries, that lemonade, them streaks of green the June bugs made come all together. Charlie was thin then, with real light eyes, and he used to whistle. And when I heard him, Shivers come on my skin. This is where we end. This has been Poet on Song, and my name is Mariama Antoine. Poet on Song is available on most listening platforms and on poetonsong.com. The music that you've heard on this podcast is as follows. Paris, Texas by Ry Cooter. After the Rain by John Coltrane. Garderman by Julia Kent. Blue and Green by Miles Davis featuring John Coltrane and Bill Evans. Lilac Wine by Nina Simone. Blues for Clarinet by Jimmy Hamilton and the Dukesmen. Poor Wayfaring Stranger by Narrow Way. 
Moonlight Serenade by Leonardo Bellicelli, and I'll Be Seeing You by Billie Holiday. I hope that you'll come again, for I've already set sail for the 13th century in search of a Persian mystic and Arabic scholar, the poet Rami. See you then. And when the night is I'll be looking at the moon, but I'll be seeing in the um.